I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity, which provides inspirational speakers and work experience opportunities. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. And in this podcast, we talk to extraordinary people who've lived astonishing lives. Why is it that often the people with the hardest beginnings in life become the most successful adults? And is there something to learn from these people who perhaps have the strongest sense of what matters most? In this series, we'll be speaking to a collection of remarkable individuals about how they achieved success in the face of adversity. Welcome to What I Wish I'd Known. In this episode, we welcome David Blunkett, the former Labour Minister, who was Home Secretary, Work and Pension Secretary and Education Secretary under former Labour Prime Minister Gordon Brown. It's incredible to think that he was able to hold down so many senior positions in the government without being able to read a red box, look at his opponents across the dispatch box or see anything around him. He used to rely a lot on a few trusted aides and on tapes, which he listens to at high speed. There was one extraordinary time when I remember I bumped into him in Westminster and his face was all smashed up and I asked him what had happened and he said they'd just put these glass revolving doors in in Westminster and his guide dog didn't understand them so he kept smashing into them and it was actually the third time that he'd smashed up his face. And you did think you have to put up with so much more than the rest of us. And there was another time when I met him, when he'd hurt himself very badly, when he'd been charged at by a herd of cows. I heard this cow coming towards me, sort of primeval sound, and I let go of the dog, and she had this sense of get out of the way, uh, and the, the cow hit me. And I was very lucky, because had it fallen on me, I wouldn't be talking to you today, mm-hmm. but it did break three of my ribs, and it did smack my face into the ground. He is remarkable, and he has no trace of self-pity ever. I've never heard him talk about himself as being a victim in any way at all. He's always very upbeat and positive, even when things are going wrong or when he lost his job. You know, there's so many times when you know, anyone else, I think, would really just go to bed and pull up the duvet. He's just determined not to be defined by his blindness. He doesn't see himself as a victim. In fact, we asked him whether he'd choose to see if he could now, and he said he wasn't sure he would because he was so used to his life being blind. I just wonder what would happen to me, never mind the people around me. I just wonder what that would mean. I do think about it occasionally. It's not going to happen because the uh, optic nerve deteriorated. They can't, even with modern science, they couldn't do anything now. But your life is built on the way you do things Mm. and the way people see you and the way that you react. But it was incredibly tough, particularly when he was very little. He went off to boarding school for the blind at the age of four and he describes incredibly powerfully what it was like, how they were caned on their hands. If you just think about caning a child on their hand, when their hands are used for braille reading and for all kinds of other purposes, It was like throwing salt in your eyes. Mm. He 
And he also talked about how he had to learn how to communicate with those that aren't visually impaired. But it did make his other senses much more heightened and he can smell far more than other people can. He also has this ability, I think, to feel empathy with other people because they're constantly touching him to guide him round, which I found extraordinary. But even when I interviewed him with Tony Blair once, Blair could actually hold him and hug him and, and hold hands and touch him, which she wouldn't have done with any other cabinet minister. But on the other hand, he couldn't pick up visual cues. He couldn't see if someone was smiling or was cross. So he had to really listen to the tone of their voices. We met David at Sheffield University, where he's a guest lecturer, and he brought along his guide dog, Barley. So, David, we're in Sheffield at the university where you're teaching, and actually, you are a star here, but your dog is even more of a star, I've noticed, as we've walked around the university campus. Well, the great thing about the dog is he doesn't upset anybody, does he? I mean, he may have a political opinion, but he has to keep it to himself. (laughs) So it's very nice. And people love dogs. And how many guide dogs have you had over the years? Do they all have very different characters? I've had seven. This is the seventh. And they're all very different. The first one was a a wonderful dog and a diabolical guide dog. (laughs) Well, she she was a pedigree lab. She was food mad. They didn't in those days put a big emphasis on recall when you let the dog off. They do now, thank goodness. And in fact, I'm amazed I had a second dog. And when I did, I said, the the one thing I want you to do is, apart from training the dog that I don't smack into lampposts, is (sighs) the dog's got to come back when I call. Because the first one, Ruby, I I remember being in a park and uh, I'd lost her and she wasn't coming back. And I said to someone passing, you see a golden Labrador? He said, yeah, she's looking around a bush. She's seen you. She's running running in the opposite direction. (laughs) I said, I can't can't put up with that. Have you always had Labradors until now? No, I've had crosses. I've had mostly Labrador curly coat retriever crosses. And this one is a German Shepherd golden retriever cross. And he's absolutely superb. I'm very, very fortunate uh, because I, I got him a couple of years before COVID, and there's a massive waiting list for guide dogs now. So uh, I've, I've instructed him. He's working for at least another four years until they sort themselves out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so we want to take you back to your childhood, and you were born in 1947 in Sheffield. It was just after the war. Clement Attlee was prime minister. What are your earliest memories? I don't remember Clement (laughs) (laughs) My most vivid early memories are twofold. One, when I was about three and I was in hospital while they were doing examinations as to what was wrong with my sight. Because in those days, there wasn't great sophisticated uh, investigatory uh, facilities. and, And it took a long time to work out that I'd got a problem with the optic nerve, but they went through all the the things that happened at that time, and I got a tumour, all the rest of it. And I learnt that if I shouted for ice creams, (laughs) when the ambulances came in, because the ambulance bells in those days, they weren't sirens, they were like like ice cream bells. And the staff just gave in and kept ice cream in the the fridge. (laughs) So you're persuasive even then. Absolutely. And then I remember vividly going to school because my parents had no choice. They had to let me go to what was then a school for the blind in Sheffield. And we were fortunate that there was a residential school for the blind in Sheffield. But even though we lived here, they made me stay over. So I was a boarder and they could come and see me once a month and I could go home 
for the main holidays. It was pretty excruciating at the age of four. And I can remember now walking past the cathedral because I had to get off one bus and we had to get another. And the bells in the evening would be striking. And I remember, for, obviously it must have been the early autumn that got, got me, because I remember the sun hitting my face and not knowing where I was going and what was going to happen. And it's pretty frightening when mm -hmm. you fall. And why do you think they sent you there at four? Do you think they thought that would be the best education for you? Or Yeah, they, they, there, was, there was a rigidity. There was very little support for what we now call integrated education, where you get support in the, in the local school. When it's done well, it's critical. When it's done badly, children are very isolated. And I'm in favour of integrated education because you have to come out of being being a boarder eventually. Mm. Uh, and it's fine when you're in your teenage years. You have, you, you have fun. We played football with ball bearings in the ball. We played cricket with a bell in the ball. We did each other considerable damage in the, in the process as well, you know. But it was just a, a laid down expectation. So at the age of four, you sent off. Some children were sent even earlier. They, they had uh, residential nurseries for blind children, uh, which would have been horrendous. Oh my God. Um, and so at four, you, you end up there, you, you, you learn the hard way, you learn to make your own bed and uh, to make sure that you hang on to your own toothbrush which uh, is, is always a challenge. Um, <laughs> How do you find your way around when you first arrive? Well, you learn, you learn by banging into things, Rachel. You, you, you end up finding your way with a little help from others. And I, my mum came up once to drop me off and she said that the most heartwarming thing was when I'd been there only a short time, I was showing a, a, a little boy who was a newcomer round, and mm -hmm. she said that really, you know, really touched mm -hmm. her. Uh, and we did help each other. I mean, it was a survival of the, not the fittest, but the survival of the, the mutual help, I think, yeah. uh, which stood me in good stead. I mean, th there were good times as well as bad. The, the bad times throughout my schooling was always the food. The good times was the camaraderie, and uh, I've still got friends from way back at, at school days. Who I keep in touch with. We learned to ride two-wheeler bikes, would you believe? And you had to count the pedal strokes to get round the corners. And so did you just hitting... have to career off? Oh Didn't yeah. You... Well, sometimes you hit the sand pit and you were over, you know, backside over tip. Um, and sometimes uh, you you do yourself quite a lot of damage. I mean, I, I did roller skating and ended up in the children's hospital. We have a specialist. <laughs> oh children's hospital here and you know it, it it toughened you up and it got you to know that you you were going to have to look after yourself and learn how to cope and were you taught um, braille as well then or how how did they teach you during the day they, they taught us braille and they taught us how to do tactile arithmetic using pegs that went into a board and the braille you didn't think anything of it I mean, you just thought this was the natural way of learning. And we had Braille symbols for the 26 letters of the alphabet, and gradually another 26 symbols, which was a form of Braille shorthand, because Braille's very bulky. So there'd be a symbol for the word and, a symbol for the word the, uh, things like that, that cut the, the space down and made it easier to, to read. I, I've never been a really fluent Braille reader I, I, I still use Braille a lot, mainly for chairing meetings and for making small notes, because I've never 
only once did I ever have to read a speech verbatim. Uh, and that was at a party conference way back in 1991 when they got really, well, arsy basically, <laughs> uh, about whether we were going to ad lib and put things in that might upset the apple cart. And I've never done it since. I always make notes and then and then I, I just speak from the, the shoulder. So I, I, I still use Braille, but unlike someone like Peter White, who's the BBC's disability correspondent, who can read Braille and you wouldn't know that he was reading, I, I'm, I'm much more a, a stumbler. And so I found that really difficult when I had to read statements from the dispatch box in the eight years I was in cabinet. I, I, I could ad lib everything else, the uh, second reading debates, uh, question time uh, in the commons, that, that was never a problem. But reading the statement was because it was handed out as you spoke and therefore you had to follow it. Oh, gosh. And that yeah. was difficult. And what I should have done is to have slowed it right down like Robin Cook, my good friend who died a long time ago, who was a fellow cabinet minister. And he used to say, Mr. Speaker, and speak really slowly. <laughs> and I could have been a lot better <laughs> at doing the statement if I'd, I'd picked that up early enough. So what were your teachers like when you were at school? They were quite cruel at times by the sound of it. Well, we had a Quaker as the headmaster of the Sheffield School, but he took to the cane. And if you just think about caning a child on their hand, when their hands are used for braille reading and for all kinds of other purposes, it was like throwing salt in your eyes. Mm. And he once said to me, as he caned me, I'd, I'd done something fairly minor. This hurts me more than it hurts you. Oh. And I said, I don't think so. So he gave me another one <laughs> for being belligerent. So it was pretty tough. and. At secondary level, the main thing was arguing for decent food. I, I learnt my politics, really, by leading a delegation to the headmaster. And one or two of the children could see quite a bit. I mean, some of us couldn't see at all, but some, some, some of the children were reasonably partially sighted. And they, they could see the food that was going across for the, for the staff and the kind of things we were having. And we went across to just say, could, could we have something more than sausages? Because we had sausages four times in one week oh. for main meal. And we said, um, could we have a, some chicken occasionally? <laughs> and we won. We got chicken on a Sunday. <laughs> Triumph. It was, it was pretty rough chicken, but it was chicken. <laughs> and so we actually you know, managed to argue our case. What was the worst food you got? The, oh, the worst food was spam. I mean, not frittered spam, just spam, just a square of spam. And do you think they gave it to you because you couldn't see, so they assumed that no, it was going to be easier, th or just for I being cheap? Th I think they were just very mean. Mm -hmm. um, and whatever funding they were getting in those days, it was from the local authority, uh, we, we weren't feeling it, that's for sure. Mm. You mentioned that some of the children had some sight. You've been blind from birth, haven't you? Did, have you ever had any kind of light and shade or colours? Can you see anything? Yes, I, I could see light and dark. I, I think I could see more when I was very young. I have some recollection of being able to read the very, very big letters on the top of a, a children's uh, comic called Hotspur. Uh, and I, I, can, I can remember that. And they tried me with glasses, which I think did amplify enough to do that. 
but did, didn't actually make a great deal of difference. Um, and I can still see where the window is, or at least I think I can see where the window is when I come in a room. And sometimes I find out it's the it's the lamp <laughs> that's on the wall. Can you remember your parents' faces at all? I mean, did you ever recognise that? No, them? I can't, which is a great shame. Uh, I mean, those are things that you do miss. It, people say, do, do you miss seeing the countryside? I, I can feel the countryside. I can stand on a hill and smell the, the flowers, the, the grass, the uh, I can I, I can feel the air. I can envisage what's in front of me, especially if somebody gives me a really decent description of perhaps a woodland and a, a river running through Derbyshire, which I love. So I, I don't miss that so much because I've been able to substitute for it. But there is no substitute for being able to see someone you love. Mm. And do you think your other senses become more highly developed, so smell and taste and touch? Touch and smell and hearing do. It wasn't until I read a book by Professor John Hull, who was at Birmingham University, who'd lost his sight in later life, and he wrote a book about how he could hear the different surfaces when it was raining between soil, between concrete, grass, he could tell the differences. And suddenly I thought, well, I, I can tell that as well, mm -hmm. but I hadn't thought about it. It wasn't something that was uppermost in my mind. And you, you use those senses in a way that, again, 80% of the time you get it right. And yeah. sometimes you get it you get it badly wrong, but it doesn't matter. You, you're taking a good guess. I remember you noticing being able to recognise people from their footfall in the commons or their perfume. Or I don't know how you did it, but you'd know who people were often. Sometimes. And sometimes people just say hello and they, they expect you to know who <laughs> the hello is from. And if they've got a very distinctive voice, you get it. And obviously circumstance matters. If you're going to a meeting and you know pretty well who's going to mm. be there, you, you can differentiate fairly quickly. It's just people passing in a, in a crowd, which is different. Yeah, footfalls. I mean, I, I, I say to my wife, Margaret, I, I love the footfall when she's got a pair of sandals on which are clip, clop, clip, <laughs> and, and I think that's yeah. a really ev evocative sound. Mm. And also there's, there's a sense when you're with people that you're more touchy-feely. I mean, you probably don't realise it, but I remember doing an interview with you with Tony Blair when he was Prime Minister, and he doesn't really touch other people, but he definitely was, he hugged you, he held you, he, he, and he enjoyed it. And I think men often don't touch each other, no, so they it probably I mean, makes I, you closer in some ways. I like being touchy-feely, but mm. you, you've got to be very careful when you can't see. I mean, in my right. younger days, I, I learned very quickly. I mean, it's even more difficult now, isn't it? Um, Young people want their own space, they call it. Mm. And I'm very mindful of it. Uh, when I was younger, you, you'd automatically want to put your hand out, touch somebody. You've got to be really careful mm. about how you do that. Mm. And are there other things you had to learn or the school had to teach you about? So, for example, we were just arranging the micros and you said you needed to be told which way to look, so you were looking at us. Yes. Uh, when I was younger, that was something you had to learn so that you didn't look odd, so yeah. that you were doing things that looked natural. And then people start to wonder, believe it or not, there was an editor of a Sunday newspaper who was also an editor of a woman's magazine who put a couple of journalists onto me once to see if I could really see. <gasps> uh, and it sounds absolutely bizarre, but clearly 
in one sense, it was a compliment. In another, it was absurd. Mm-hmm. And of course, I think she soon found out that, you know, I, I wouldn't have a guide dog. Uh, if I couldn't see, I wouldn't learn Braille if I couldn't see. But it's, you know, in, if she thought that I was doing pretty well, then so be it, you know, because I've, I've always wanted to work on equal terms. I wanted people to forget that I can't see. Mm. And in the political arena, that was very important in the early days, because mm. if people were patronizing, that's the worst of all worlds. You wanted people literally to treat you and to be as robust, and they were, and and thank God they still are. Mm. And with your mother, was she, um, could you remember her sort of ever getting upset when she dropped you off at school, or did, did she find it difficult? Because it must be quite hard with your only child to leave them every week. Yeah, I did think both parents found it really difficult, my mum in particular. She had great telepathy. She used to ring, we didn't have a phone at home, so she'd be ringing from a phone box. She'd ring the school and say, is David all right? I'm quite worried about him. And then I would, they, she'd found that I was in the sick bay. I, I was poorly or, or I was taken to the children's hospital with a breakage. So she had terrific telepathy and I, I have a bit of it and it frightens me sometimes because I, I feel something happening and I, I don't know, you know, you've just got to get on with life and you can't say, oh, I'm going to stop doing this because I've got a terrible feeling it's going to go wrong. And mm. um, when did you first realise that other children could see? Did you have a sense of being different or was it just your, your reality? The reality was that I was with youngsters from, the, from that early age who couldn't see. So yeah. you didn't think about it. And it was only in my teens, really, when I realized that you know, people could see a lot. I knew I knew people, I wasn't stupid, I knew people <laughs> could see and that I couldn't, but I had no idea just how much people could see. And even into my very late teens, people were saying, you've got to realize that somebody from hundreds of yards away can see what you're doing. <laughs> and it's nice. quite a rude awakening. Mm-hmm. To put it crudely, people say, don't pick your nose. (laughs) (laughs) Could you tell us a bit about your father? Can you remember a lot about him and what was he like? Yeah, my dad was killed in a works accident when I was 12, but I do remember a lot about him. I I remember he'd had a very poor education, as had my mum. I mean, they'd both left school. My dad left school at 14, my mum at 15. He'd learnt a lot about current affairs, which got me interested and general knowledge. He used to sit me on his knee when I was about eight or nine and get me to uh, recite the capital cities of the world. Of course, some of them have changed their names since. (laughs) Um, And that was a really important part of my connection with him. We went long walks when I was back home for the holidays. And he took me, when we could, to the football. We'd start going when I was about three or four to Hillsborough to uh, the Sheffield Wednesday games. We lived on the hill just above the ground. So when I couldn't go, when he was working and he worked shifts, so he only had one weekend off, full weekend off in every seven. So we, we didn't go all that often. But when we didn't, I could sit on the back step and hear what was happening in the ground from the crowd. Because in those days we had 70,000 in the ground and you could hear whether we'd scored a goal or whether we'd just missed. And the terrible 
uh, sigh uh, if the other <sighs> side had scored. Did your father then do a running commentary during the football match? How did yeah, you know? Well, in those days, it was safe. We, he sat me on the wall behind the goal at the cop end and, uh, and would give me a commentary. And of course, you were so close to the goalkeeper, you could hear him swearing. <laughs> <laughs> and these days, I, I, I go and uh, we have a commentary uh, in, inside the ground uh, that's laid on for people who can't see and for the hospitals. And so I get a commentary, but when, when as they so often do on Radio 5 and TalkSport, forget to, uh, to tell you what's happening whilst they talk to each other. My wife, Margaret, and over the years, my sons, have, have chipped in and uh, filled in the gaps. So I, I get the message, I get the atmosphere, and it's it's almost in the blood. It's it's like an obsession. As as we're talking, my side is at the bottom of the championship <laughs> and in a terrible mess, but we're still going, and we've been to away games, so you, you can see we're we're fanatics. <laughs> Football and politics and love. I've both lifted and bedeviled my life <laughs> ever since I was very little. <laughs> and then when you were 12, your father died in this horrible accident. Just tell us what happened. He was over pensionable age, but because I was young, he decided to carry on working. And they'd asked him to train new people coming in. He, he was a, we used to call it a foreman supervisor in those days. He'd worked for the same company company that was a nationalized industry for 45 years and um, he fell into a vat of boiling water it was what there was a process called uh, water gas plant it was it you you put the coal in it came out as coke uh, and they, they extracted the the gas from it and uh, he lived for a month in the hospital I went to see him and if I, I, I can remember the, the smell of burning flesh now. Oh. Um, and, you know, just being there with my mum when the telegram came to say he, he died and just remembering her sitting on the settee, just crying and crying and crying. And I had to go to school. I, I hadn't started at the secondary school in Shropshire. I'd been delayed because he was ill throughout December and it was very early January when he died. And I had to leave her the week after to, to go to school. She, she managed to pull together a bit of pocket money for spending money and things. And then she thought she hadn't given me money and she sent me some more money. And what came over me, I don't know, because I could have been quite a popular youngster. I sent it back. And I found out some years later that she'd only got a couple of pounds left in the house because the, believe it or not, this nationalised industry fought her against getting any compensation on the grounds that he was over retirement age and therefore his earning age had finished. Oh, that's and extraordinary. it took two years to get some compensation out of them. So when I... It was one of the things that affected my thinking about politics, together with my grandfather, who my mum couldn't look after any longer because she had breast cancer. In those days, it was almost always fatal. She she managed to, to live for a very long time afterwards. But my grandfather had to go into uh, an NHS facility, which was really a workhouse, and died in there. 
And I, I visited him, he, he died when I was 13, so the two years running of these traumas. And I swore that if I could ever, ever do anything to ensure that people didn't have to put up with that, or the lack of health and safety and inhumanity of what my dad had, uh, had gone through, uh, I would do so. And that, that really did sort of inculcate into me. I didn't think immediately, I'm going to get into politics. Mm. I mean, at the age of 13, you don't know what politics is. Mm, no. But by the time I was 16, I did, mm. um, listening to the radio, which was my main educator, and wanting to think, I'm, I'm going to join a political party. I'm, I'm going to try and do something about it. And no political party is exactly in tune with everything you feel and think. You, your task is to influence it as well as support it. But I thought the Labour Party was the nearest thing to what I thought was right. And we were in the era of Harold Wilson and George Brown, who Harold had just taken over as leader of the Labour Party. Hugh Gateskill had died. There was a battle for the 1964 general election. Macmillan had retired and Alec Douglas Hume, who was a toff, had taken over. The Beatles, social change, Pill had come in a year or two earlier. We all thought that Labour was a shoe-in for winning the 1964 election, and they only won by five seats. It's, it's a lesson. You're listening to What I Wish I'd Known, in association with Speakers for Schools, with Rachel Sylvester and me, Alice Thompson. There'll be more from us just after this. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to What I Wish I'd Known, in association with Speakers for Schools, with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson, and our guest on this episode, David Blunkett. You became the youngest ever councillor on Sheffield Council at 22, and then in 87, you were elected MP for Sheffield Brightside. Do you think that your disabilities ever got in the way of your political career, or in some ways, has it been an advantage? I think it got in the way in the sense that you had to overcome other people's mindset. I, 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 was a, I, I became a councillor whilst I was at the university. I just started at the university and the seat became vacant because someone who was going to stand moved to South Wales and they took a big chance on me. I mean, firstly, age-wise, it's not uncommon now for people to, to be in politics in their early 20s, but... Then the average age was about 45, 50 mm. on the council. So they took a big chance. And the, the, the challenge for me was to, to prove people wrong who didn't think I could, I could do it. There, there's a poem by William Blake, London, 
And in it, he talks about mind-forged manacles, i.e. other people, their attitude confine you. And I, my task was to undo the manacles mm. <laughs> and make people f realize. And by the time I'd been leader of Sheffield for those seven years before the 87 general election, people either got it or they didn't get it. Or at least I thought that until I was in the Commons and then discovered there were still people who really didn't believe that I was going to be able to work on equal terms. And do you think your childhood made you tougher in some ways? Because you really had to do so much at your school that actually Sheffield Council can't have been that difficult in comparison. Well, it made me tougher. I mean, there is good and the bad here. It, it made me tough. These days they call it resilient. But it also made me very prickly and a little bit arsy. Um, <laughs> And I, it, it, you know, I, I can now, uh, at my ripe old age, be a, li a little bit more understanding and forgiving and a little bit more appreciative of how you've got to win people over. But when I was in go government, I was very lucky to have excellent special advisors and a great team, but I was terrible with my fellow cabinet ministers. And I think back thinking, you know, if I'd been a little bit more understanding about how they saw me, as well as how I saw them, it might have been a little bit easier. Instead of having the backing of the Prime Minister and quite often the backing of the Chancellor and just ploughing my way through. So I think it was, I, I had the tenacity, the toughness, the, the, the will to just do it. But I also was a little bit insensitive to other people's perceptions of me. And is that partly because you can't pick up the visual signals that people send out, the body language or the the look in their eye? Yeah, I'm smiling because it's, again, good and bad. I mean, sometimes it was brilliant that I didn't see how people were reacting when I was telling them the truth. Yes. <laughs> and sometimes it was disastrous because they really went away thinking, you know, what is he about? Mm. <laughs> and someone told me, uh, who was uh, high up in the civil service dealing with security, that on the evening we met after the terrible attack on the World Trade Center on the 9-11-2001, we, we met in the uh, briefing room, Cobra, and that Tony Blair said, we will stand together shoulder to shoulder with the US. And he said, everybody else was looking at their hands. And I looked at him and said, yes, of course, when we agree with them. Oh, really? Yes, yeah, so it, it's that sense, isn't it, of picking up sort of cues in a room. But yeah. then do you... I wasn't picking them up sufficiently. Mm. Yeah, but actually, <laughs> you also maybe that's good. Yes, and, yeah. and also, do you find that... Was there a lot of reading to do? Because you must have had all the red boxes and when you were a minister, you know, a lot of extra reading and you have to know what's going on in the press and you have to know what's going on in the news. My How? biggest challenge, right from early age, my biggest challenge has been reading. I mean, other things you can get over. I have a braille watch, I now have a guide dog. I've learned the, uh, the ways of coping with the, the other senses that we were describing. But reading has always been that massive devotion of time, really. Uh, in the early days, there were out of date braille books. There wasn't the internet. You couldn't draw something down from the web. So when I was at university, for instance, I did a, a, a quid pro quo. I'm a great believer in reciprocity, mutuality, reciprocity. It's part of my 
political philosophy. And I said to the other students, if you'll if you read to me, either on old fashioned tape or directly, mm. as part of a reading circle, and I can get the tutors to tell me which books and which chapters of books and which journals are absolutely crucial to read, and then I can tell you what we need to read, <laughs> and you read to me, we're both getting something out of it. And in those days, you had massive reading lists. The students now don't read half as much because they can pull down bits from, mm. from the internet, um, much uh, half as much as what we used to read. And that was a great step forward. And then once I was climbing the, the greasy pole, both on the council where I had personal assistant as leader of the council, and then later when I had facilities, which I had to battle for in the House of Commons, I had to, to battle to have extra equipment. There was, in those early days, we, we could link the early computer to a braille transcriber. I needed extra people power to read to me, to, to sift and to read and pray see. And that took a battle, which I eventually won, in order to be able to work on equal terms and not to sink, because I knew if I sunk, not only my constituency would be damaged, but the cause of people with disabilities being able to demonstrate not just within the political arena, but to employers more broadly, that it could be done. Mm. I, I had a battle for that. But it did still mean that I was listening to material, even if I could speed it up with the cassette machines that I had, which you could, there's only so far you could go before Mickey Mouse drives you completely mad. Yeah. That's the sound that was coming out. I had to put the hours in. The plus was that I really did do the homework. I mean, when I was mm. Education Employment Secretary, I preached homework, but I had to do it because I couldn't skip through the reports at a meeting, which a lot of people were doing, you yeah. know, just reading through it, marking stuff as they went along. The downside was that I, I think I wasn't a great social being. I think in the 28 years I was in the Commons, I only went into the bars five or six times. Right. And it does mean Firstly, that you avoid um, some of the pitfalls of being in the bars, but it does mean that you don't—you're not a social being with a lot of others. And although I made very good friends in the political arena, I wasn't all that camaraderie in the tea room and the bars in the way that others were. Yeah, and you've always had an incredible memory, I think. But there was a moment when you first became a cabinet minister and the civil servants were trying to prepare and they, they bought a Swedish braille machine, didn't they? So what happened? How did you realise there was a problem? Well, they'd been kind enough to get the, the equipment set up because Tony Blair had declared I was going to be the education secretary. Gordon Brown and I were very lucky because it was clear that we were going to be in office if we won. And it became very clear close to the election that we, that we were going to win by 179 seats, but we, 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 we knew we were going to win. And so they set it up and it was about three days, four days in. And I went across to do a presentation at Downing Street and I took the braille with me and I couldn't read a word. And it didn't actually matter because I'd been in opposition preparing for this for a long time, two and a half years. I just ad-libbed and that was absolutely fine. <laughs> Tony didn't notice. I went back and said, look, there's something drastically wrong here. I can't, I can't read any of this. 
and they shot off and then they came back. And as you said, they said to me, Secretary of State, we're really sorry. We, we bought the, uh, the Braille transcriber from Sweden and we hadn't switched it over. Ah. <laughs> and so I was getting Swedish Braille, which uh, by anybody's standards is a challenge. You know? <laughs> and you've also, there was one time we met you when your face had been smashed in, when you had to go through a glass door that they'd put in at Westminster. And there are other times when you've been chased by cows when you're walking. Do you still have those sort of issues more than other people, do you think? Yes, you do. You, you can't think about it, otherwise you wouldn't do stuff. So you just have to get up and get on with it. The, the cow is a particular problem because I, I was walking without the harness on. I was walking up the hillside. My son was on his phone about one of my son's 50 yards behind. And it was early June. In fact, it was my birthday. <laughs> and because uh, I, I remember it very well, of course. And I heard this cow coming towards me, sort of primeval sound. And I let go of the dog and she had the, it was a, it was a she in those days, the dog had the sense of get out of the way. Uh, and the, the cow hit me. Oh. And I was very lucky because had it fallen on me, I wouldn't be talking to you today, mm. but it did break three of my ribs and it did smack my face into the ground. And when I went to the local uh, hospital, it was, it was one of these very, you know, sort of local country hospitals, they were more interested in my face than they were in my ribs, and I was more interested in the pain. Yeah. Afterwards, I said, I've just got to go up that hillside again and just put it aside. Like when you're a child and you go into the sea and the, the, the waves knock you over and you've got to get back in and, and overcome it because otherwise you'd be worried about everything. And it, just bear in mind that even crossing a road when you can't see is a, is a big, big ask mm. and you just got to do it. So you're incredibly independent, but you must also be very reliant on the kindness of others in that situation to cross a road or... Yes, yes, you are. And you've got to remember that people aren't always comfortable with offering help. Mm. I, I was very prickly when I was in my late te teens, early 20s, and people weren't always sensitive. The, the message is a very clear one. If you're going to help somebody, just ask them, you know, just put your hand on their arm and say, can I be of help well, and, and if they say yes you say what's the best way of helping and then hear them um but people did have one incident quite seriously i've been i know it sounds apocryphal where i was stood waiting for somebody at the edge of a road and somebody literally grabbed me and took me across the road <laughs> <laughs> well you didn't want to go no, I, didn't want to go. No, I was quite yeah i was just waiting um, and and you do get that and you have to be to realize that You've got to be kind back because next time they see somebody who might need help, they might not help them. Mm. So you, you learn a bit about the two-way sensitivity there. Mm. What was it like when you had children? Because you've got four sons. How did they react and how did you react as a parent? It takes a bit before they get to know that you can't see. Mm. Uh, and then it's a little bit of a joke, as it is with my wife's very small grandchildren. You know, it's a, it's a great joke to run up and smack David one and then run away. <laughs> uh, they soon learn that I can hear, uh, yeah. <laughs> and that I can hear their footfalls and I can hear them breathing and we, we can make a joke out of it. For, for my sons, it just became natural because of being just there all the time and picking them up and getting them to learn to do descriptions or to watch pitfalls if I'd let the dog off in the woods. 
and I got a very small child on my shoulders just to say, let us know when there's a branch coming up because mm. otherwise I'll sweep you off my shoulders. <laughs> mm. Would the dog know though? The, do- the dog would if I had it on the lead or the harness. The dog would avoid overheads, although it's quite challenging for them. It's one mm. of the biggest challenges for a guide dog is the, is the, uh, the distance that they have to judge mm. o- overhead. But I often let the dog off and just walk the path very carefully um, in order to give the dog a break. Would you choose to see if you could? I think that's a pretty profound question, actually. Of course, when I was young, I would. There are people with disabilities who are, you know, say, just be proud, you know, why, why would you think about overcoming it? I've never felt like that. I think if I could have seen when I was young, I would have seen. I would have been wonderful to have done that. Now, I just wonder what would happen to me, never mind the people around me. I just wonder what that would mean. I do think about it occasionally. It's not going to happen because the uh, optic nerves deteriorated. They can't, even with modern science, they couldn't do anything now. But your life is built on the way you do things mm. and the way people see you and the way that you react. And it might come as quite a shock to me. Mm. <laughs> Who knows? My perceptions of things would change overnight, wouldn't they? Yes, what do you think they would change? You'd see people in a totally different light. You Mm. have a picture of people that you build up from their voices, their manner, the way that they they behave and and talk. When someone says to you that someone's very beautiful, what does that mean to you then? Because that must be strange that people judge so much on looks, don't they? Yeah, I I would blend the idea of beauty. I mean, when when touch means... Beauty is is something that is is. I'll use the word delectable to touch. Mm-hmm. Is, is nice to touch, but beauty is also about how how someone relates to you. Be- beauty is, as they say, in the the eye of the beholder, and if that's true, it's in the mind of the beholder mm-hmm. as well. But it's it's a it's a good question. The, the beauty that people see is different. It has to be. Otherwise, half the population wouldn't be in relationships with each other because they'd always be looking for the grass that's greener. Mm. People do, by the way. I mean, people often think that something's going to be better and it, and it isn't. So what do you imagine Keir Starmer looking like? What's your kind of visual image? Well... <laughs> I have some idea, of course, about his height and and I get from his manner and voice and his background as a prosecutor, you know, how he would stand and hold himself. If I'm honest, I don't know him well enough mm-hmm. to have a, a really deep feeling about the person. You, you do need to know someone well. And Keir is someone who is only just now coming across to the public as well. So it, it, these are difficult questions, aren't they? I mean, I got to know Tony Blair and Gordon Brown very well. They were incredibly different characters, but I would have some perception. I even had a perception. I was asked this question on Desert Island Discs donkeys years ago uh, about Margaret Thatcher. And the same answer, I got Margaret Thatcher from her manner. Mm and from her voice, and also from a little gesture she once actually made 
when very early on, just a, less than a year into when I was in the Commons, my then guide dog died and she sent me a handwritten note. And I thought at the time, she, she's obviously more caring about dogs than she sometimes is about people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and how do you think Keir Starmer was different in a way from Tony Brown, Gordon Brown, because you know them so well? Totally different era, completely different circumstances. I mean, bizarre circumstances. We couldn't make up the last seven or eight years. It's beyond anything I could have imagined all those years ago, having to deal with that. Having someone who has a very well deep uh, legal background, although Tony Tony was, was a barrister, I think actually stood him in good stead because we are in an area where we need stability and, and security and, and the kind of thinking that requires that kind of learning, that kind of thinking, that kind of mind which lawyers have where you can analyse and you can be extremely calm under pressure and the pressure is going to get a lot more in the nine to 12 months ahead. Do you think he's emotional enough though? So some of the Labour MPs are frustrated that he's pursuing what they call the sort of ming Vaz strategy where he's very cautious, worried about slipping over ahead of the election and they want a bit more kind of passion and vision. Well, you are, you are what you are. Mm. I mean, people used to criticise Clem Attlee including horrible things that Churchill said about him. But actually, the, the, the public came to, to, to love him and to understand uh, his downbeat approach was appropriate in very difficult circumstances. I, I mean, I'm a more emotional politician. I mean, I wear my heart on my sleeve. I, I love oratory. I grew up with it. I feel passionate. And I'm different, and we're all we're all very different. So I wouldn't criticise. And the honest truth is, you've got to be yourself. People spot when you're not. If you try to be something you aren't, then you you get it very badly wrong. So I just say to Keir, just be yourself. And on issues, say such as immigration, which you had to deal with, do you feel any sympathy for the Tories at all, or do you look at them and think you've just made a complete mess of this? I have some sympathy in the sense that. They're dealing with circumstances partly of their own making. If we hadn't come out of the European Union, we wouldn't be pulling in vast numbers of people from the rest of the world to fill the social care vacancies and what have you, because we'd have had free movement of labor and people would have been coming in and out without this totting up. We wouldn't, of course, if without the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, have had large numbers of Ukrainians and uh, uh, so they're dealing with that. Where, where I disagree profoundly with them is Chivalets. Even Jacob Rees-Mogg has described the Rwanda policy as a distraction because you're talking about a few hundred people a year being sent on a one-way ticket to an African country whilst we're dealing with tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, quite legitimately in most cases, coming into the country. Immigration's toxic. It's toxic across the world. We live as we did just over 20 years ago in a very fragile moment where the far right are in, in the ascendant, both in Europe and in other parts of the world. We've seen that in Holland and, and Argentina. And that means you've got to have a language and a calmness about this, which doesn't allow sheer emotionalism to override logic. I mean, if you want to stop immigration at its present level, 
then you destroy the university system by refusing to allow overseas students to pay us to provide them with a service. You'd shut down large parts of our social care system. You can do it, but it's at a terrible price. And David Cameron's come back as Foreign Secretary in the House of Lords. Would you come back under a Labour government? Can you think of something you'd like to do? Because you've held a lot of the great offices. Is there one other job you'd like? No, the job I'd like is to be able to provide really good advice and to be listened to, not just about what I think should be done or what I believe I did well, but what went wrong. Here are the pitfalls, here are the things that you might be able to avoid. But of course, as we all find with our own children and grandchildren, they don't want to know. (laughs) Do you look at the Labour Party now rowing over... Gaza and think back to Iraq and see that as a mistake? Are you worried that they're kind of repeating some of those mistakes? Well, I didn't think Iraq was a mistake at the time. And so I've been very clear, if if I were in the same circumstances with the same immediate history, I would have voted the same way again. Uh, With Gaza, the emotions are incredibly high, uh, understandably so. I, I took the line from the beginning that if you couldn't get a pause, you wouldn't get a ceasefire. We, we did have a, a pause. A, a ceasefire involves both sides and talking about it rationally and not upsetting people and not being seen to take sides is very, very difficult. But that's how challenging politics is. And that's how we have to learn to be able to do it really well. And do you think coming in in 1997 that you were much more optimistic then than they can ever be now if Labour do get back? Because in a way, you were in a vaguely similar situation, but it just does seem much more tense, both internationally and domestically, that we we feel more of a mess. Yeah, I'm an awkward son, so I, I never got exhilarated beyond belief when we were obviously on the edge of something very special in '97. And I've not got really down with the challenges and difficulties that have beset us. So I I take a a, a slightly more modest line, which is that this is more difficult than 97. We had an enormous tide running for us and the circumstances were on the the up, they were improving. Now we have, on the back of COVID and the back of austerity, we have the most enormous challenge, but it's never as bad as it seems. There's always ways forward. I I found money when we were in in 97, before the first spending round, that nobody knew that was available. At the moment, there are massive underspends within government that if, it's, if they're not given away in a, a tax bung in March, we will still have some resource in government if we win, but it's gonna be damned hard. And I think getting that across to the electorate is even harder because what you don't want is a one-term government. You don't want to get in and then people become so disillusioned that you don't, you haven't got the time to do what you really need to do. Do you worry that Labour's too sort of hidebound by fiscal rules and not spending any money and trying to prove economic competence, whereas actually you do want to spend money? Well, after the... After the 2019 election, it's not surprising that people are cautious and are actually trying to make sure that they avoid the elephant traps. We've always made the mistake in the Labour Party of fighting the previous election. Mm. And I think we've got to get across some optimism and hope because 
We can't rely entirely on Conservative voters staying at home or switching to us or the Lib Dems. We, we've got to provide in 2024 a reason to vote for us as well as a reason for people to vote against the Conservatives. There's plenty of reasons that they will do the latter. And I keep saying to people, why, why would you vote Tory after the 14 years? But I don't think that will be enough. And is there anything looking back that you haven't done that you want to do or that you've been prevented to do because you were blind? Or is that, are you going to retire sort of gradually? What, what's your next plan? My, my next plan is not to retire. <laughs> so, I mean, I have to ease off a bit over the years ahead. I mean, I do, I do now think, think that I'm probably doing as much as it's possible to do without cracking. I've still got as much energy and drive as some people in their 40s and 50s, but it, it can't last forever. But I want to at least continue to do something until the moment comes when I can't. Because firstly, that's how I am. I just love being involved and doing things, either voluntary sector or, or where I can keep paying an assistant to be able to work with me. And secondly, because I would drive my wife mad if I was at home all the time. <laughs> um, because I, I'm not good at gardening, although I love the garden. I, I can't ride a bike out on my own, so I need a tandem. Can you cook? I can cook. Um, not very well, but okay. You know, I, over the years I, I learned to cook when I was on my own. I tend to do simple things, roasts in the oven or things in foil. Frying is very difficult. I've done my fingers in. Some of my braille reading is more difficult now because of frying. Mm. And turning things over is incredibly difficult. But, you know, just enjoying life. I, I, I love walking. I love poetry. I love uh, being with the family. And I just enjoy continuing to be able to make a contribution. And I would never come back. Nobody would. I'm not going to be asked to anyway, but I, I wouldn't come back because what you've done, you've done. I think David Cameron has come back because he was a complete loose end. And because it was in a moment in time when it was very clever to wipe out the Braverman sacking by bringing someone back into a post which he loves and which undoubtedly he's good at. And if you can at his age have a comeback, then all to the good. I'd like one or two of my previous colleagues to be given a, a chance to come back. But there's a lot of young people who deserve the chance of being able to make the contribution. And I just want them to avoid the mistakes we made, but to take up the cudgel and have the same ambition and drive and fervor that we had. What would you say were the main mistakes? Oh, well, we all, we all make mistakes. We, we think we're pushing as hard as we can and that there's nothing more in a particular area we can do. That was true of education. I thought I'd pushed the boundaries of getting teachers uh, to run with us on the changes we were making as hard as possible. I thought we were getting the police to modernize as much as they, they could. In retrospect, we could have pushed both harder. I think we could have learned about the mistake in the Iraq war of not going in, but what was going to happen afterwards. Mm. And hindsight is a wonderful thing. I think we could have also learned that with a majority of 179 followed by 165, followed by 67, there's so much as a government that we could have pushed, which now, you know, we regret 
but there's so much we managed to do and I'm very proud of that era. And looking back at yourself as that small boy going off to boarding school when you were only four, what do you wish that you'd known then that you know now? I wish I'd known that it's quite important to get a life and have a really good time when you're in your late teens and in your 20s rather than leaving it late. Um, and I didn't get the work-life balance right, partly because of the time I had to put in, in studying and in politics, and partly because circumstance didn't land quite as I would have expected it to. But you can't look back and regret. You've got to look back on the good things and rejoice in the contribution you've been able to make and the wonderful people that have allowed you to do it and the great experiences that that's brought. And I've had a wonderful life and I've every intention of having a bit more. David Blunkett, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you. listening to What I Wish I'd Known, in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity that provides inspirational talks and work experience opportunities, with me, Rachel Sylvester. And me, Alice Thompson. And our guest on this episode, David Blunkett. The series producer is Anya Pierce, and the editor was Callum McRae. If you enjoyed what you heard, why not pick up a copy of our book, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young? Or you can follow the podcast so you never miss an episode. And of course, you can listen back to all our previous episodes on the free Times Radio app or download them from wherever else you get your podcasts. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.